to Oops All Monsters, the deadly unserious show about cryptids, creatures, and curiosities curated by two weirdos from wild and wonderful West Virginia. That weirdo with me, when I could get him to stop digging deep trenches underneath grad students in rural Nevada, is <laughs> Gavin. And this weirdo with me in his melancholy and infinite sadness is Hess. I like that you've just taken a turn to random observations as opposed to, like, monster bits. I think that's good, actually. Uh, and we are here uh, to, as we always are, delight and edify... You, the reader with tales of mysterious monsters from mythology, film, literature, TV, as well as gaming from inside of the box and out of the console and beyond. On a rotating basis, Gavin and I each bring a monster into the shop unknown to the other presenter and present and discuss them for our own benefit and the and for the education of you, the readers at home. So uh, today I am up. Really, I think the only way to do it is to get into my narrative. Um, this is a this is a beefy this is a beefy boy. We'll get into some more meta <laughs> elements of this topic about like how we're going to cover it, uh, how I'm going to cover it after it's revealed what it is. So it, do you just to to keep on the the bit going? Do you have even the foggiest fucking clue what I'm going to no, present? No, all Gavin? I know is that it is Campbell's chunky beefy. Like, mm-hmm. of, of some type of okay it's a he- it's a heavy it in the lexicon of last podcast this is a heavy hitter um, all right it is noteworthy <laughs> gavin yes. before we get started do you have a villainous vocabulary for us today villainous vocabulary have you yes, heard I it do. by the way did you did you hear the the previous episode where i had the stings? oh no i didn't i didn't get you to listen, listen to, to it yet. you'll like the stings i promise <laughs> but so what All are right. what are we looking at here today we are going to learn the word gallo glass i think i've heard you say we i'm we didn't cover that on the show but i'm curious i feel i've heard that you talk about this one before because yeah. what what is how do we spell gallo glass first of all G A L L O W G L A S S. So is it is it um, executionary by nature in some way like gallo like <laughs> executionary? It's it's a mercenary or retainer uh, of an Irish chief or an armed Irish foot soldier. <sighs> I'm not sure that I understand. It, it it is a what is it? Well, the term existed across three centuries, so that's why it has so many uh, vague applications to just like a soldier from Ireland. Okay, because I think originally they were mercenaries. Um, either they were foreign mercenaries or just uh, roustabouts who knew how to fight. Or Vikings, and uh, they were hired by Irish chieftains to be their personal bodyguards. All right, now I'm—it's kind of a form of less formal mercenary. Yeah. So it's kind of like a pre—it's kind of a early feudal system, 
like tribal it's like a tribal mercenary as opposed to a more like modern world colonial mercenary where yes you're, it's a little bit more based off of like allegiances and and tribe and identity huh okay uh well that's about it unless i get really into it and if i get really into it it could be the show okay because yeah like i said it was like three centuries of it was it it went on for three centuries of use so like uh the the meaning of gallo glass uh changed a lot in the like from uh 1517 it says uh when the reform uh, when the when the reformication of the country was taken in hand, it was reported that Irish forces in Thomond were 750 horses, 2,324 kiln, and six batalliers of gallo glass. This, so, this is... Which yeah, was this probably is a battalion. Incredibly fascinating. This is gonna this is blowing up my whole mind and taking me in a whole like sidebar. I'm like, let's not even I'm like, let's not even do this episode that I just spent like two weeks preparing for. But um, okay, I recommend everybody um, uh, Wikipedia this and donate to Wikipedia. I know they're frequently asking you, but everybody should donate to Wikipedia. We need them. They do an important thing. The Wikipedia for Gallo Glass is huge. Yeah, yeah, I'm, um, I'm looking at this and it is... It is yeah. not not small at all, and it takes you. It can take you to a lot of places. I really want to include. Yeah. I really include like including elements of mercenary culture in my games, and I I want to have more of it because it's it, you know, we all kind of have like a we should all of us should better understand mercenary culture of history more because it still fucking matters a lot, like. The proportionality yeah. of that our wars get fought by mercenary companies is nuts, and people are absolutely <laughs> not aware of it. Like every time that Rachel Maddow describes something as a when contractors die in Afghanistan, they're not fucking building houses, they're not carpenters, they're goddamn mercenaries. Uh, yeah. Like our world is still full of mercenaries, and it is a Im- should, real and important. I should thing. mention that both Hess and I actually come from a long line of mercenaries. Well, yeah, that's a good. <laughs> that's well, you know, I don't know if that holds up. To, I don't know that if that holds up to Wikipedia's standards of attribution, but yeah. uh, we'll get into that later. <laughs> but I mean, my name literally does mean mercenary, so you know, there's since I yes, some, it does. something. <laughs> If I risk my neck for you, will I get a chance to kill Englishmen? Is your father a ghost? Or do you converse with the Almighty? In order to find his equal, an Irishman is forced to talk to God. All right, well, Gallo Glass. Check it out. If you need a, if you need a, an inspiration for your fantasy game or your uh, graduate thesis in um, medieval history, here you go. There's a freebie for you. It's it's like the Irish the Irish character from Braveheart is pretty much like a gallo glass. Excellent. Stephen is my name. My, my island. <laughs> Braveheart, the incredibly historically accurate movie about stuff that definitely happened that way. <laughs> Was the actual original title, wife? You didn't know. Well, thank yeah. you, Gavin, for that distractingly compelling. 
Villain's vocabulary. This one is going to start with a, a little narrative chunk, and then we will get to dis- to. To, to sussing it all out. So if if you're new to the show, a lot of the times we have a little narrative story to introduce the world of the monster, um, but it's not the whole show. So if you're like, this is is this what the show is? Don't worry, it will end. We will get the the music the music will stop yeah. and we will we will discuss the topic. So anybody that for some reason this is your first episode, it won't be the whole show. Okay, okay, all right, Gavin. Imagine it's. Uh, it's 1954 Pittsburgh, a land of ceramic washing machines and gleaming tin awnings as far as the eye can see. America is nine years out of the big war and still marching down Main Street with one flag over its shoulder and a 12-inch priapism at the angle of a Sherman tank's main gun. Hundreds of figures shift all around you in the bustling metropolis, the Iron City practically Lucifer's own forge burning at maximum Fahrenheit 24-7, 365, to satisfy the growing country's unquenchable need for steel. The machinery of the United States of America powers slavishly to produce goods for consumers at home and abroad, feed America and much of the rest of the world, and You, Charlie Bennett, are a psychiatrist that works out of a small practice in Squirrel Hill. You dodge massive Fords, (laughs) Buicks, and Chryslers as you cross the street. Someone should really get this city working on all this litter. You feel certain this neighborhood used to have better standards. Seems nobody wants to work anymore. Trying to avoid thinking about your client list for a few more precious moments, you peruse today's paper as you've finished up your two-martini lunch. Confronted with a small piece on page three about a housewife who beat her husband into the hospital bed with her iron when she became convinced that he wasn't really himself, some kind of imposter. As a psychological professional, you've read about these kinds of delusions. Heck, you've even encountered patients from time to time with their own similar, if slightly different problems, but rarely resulting in violence. Picking up the pace, you catch your brisk reflection in the dusty glass of the florist's window. Why haven't they washed that window? It seems like they used to wash it almost daily. Joe, the shoeshiner, gives you a wave. Nice day there, Lieutenant. He's always got some unearned honorific for everyone on the street. Always a character. But something in his face doesn't seem right. Something behind his eyes. The silly news stories get into your brain that quickly, you see. That's how a whole town gets into a panic and burns teenage girls at the stake for witchcraft. Luckily, the human race is past that kind of thing. We're modern. We're advanced. Hell, it's 1956, for Jehovah's sake. You slap the rolled-up newspaper against your hip as you cross the street over to your office when a little dachshund runs out in front of you, almost run down by a white-walled Oldsmobile that didn't so much as flinch. You reach down and call the little floppy-eared guy to get him safely out of traffic, and he turns and... Oh my god, he has a human face! It's a dog with a human face! Fuck, there's a dog oh. with a human face! <laughs> Alright. So, uh, what oh, is boy. our topic today, Gavin? Is it body snatchers? It be body snatchers. It's body snatchers. Oh, I got it. 
Oh, man. <laughs> hide your kids, hide your wife. They snatching everybody up in here. <laughs> so what All right. is the oh. body snatchers? I say is because it, it is different it is different pieces of pop culture what are they what is the thing well here's the thing is um it is a lot of things and i'm not going to try to cover all of them in today's episode because there's a it rolls (laughs) body snatchers roll deep uh culturally um and yeah by which i mean uh jack finney's original 1954 um serialized magazine piece that was eventually turned into the uh, novel that was published in 1954 uh, called The Body Snatchers is more than just like four movies directly based off of it. There's multiple movies that are loosely based off of it and a whole it it has affected culture ever since in a very broad and dynamic way, not just limited to the scope of the things that are obviously uh, influenced and directly adapted from uh, that original 1954 book. So let me get into, uh, well, you know what? Let me know. Let, what, what are the big, like, word cloud phrases that hit you, Gavin, about the body snatchers? Pointing and screaming. Oh, yes. The, oh, yes. The Donald Sutherland pointing and screaming. Yeah, I think. Just is uh, first and foremost in my head. Like, that's the first thing I see in my mind whenever I hear body snatchers. Absolutely. And all of the possible memes that that could <laughs> Yeah, it is a lot. Of, I bet it is a lot of memes that I, I have not even. Well, we're going to include those in the Instagram. Yeah. But, yeah, I guarantee it's a lot of memes. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is uh, maybe. Because it's it's closer to uh, our age, it's, it was kind of aimed at our parents in their generation of kind of decadent key party nineteen seventies boomers. Um, the the seven the yeah. seventy eight film adaptation starring Donald Sutherland ends in it, it, there there are certain ways and it's that it's not the most strong film, but it's probably the scariest adaptation. Yeah, I, it was scary to me. It's, well, it, it's visually scary. It's conceptually scary. Yeah. It's made well. And the punchline, yes. um, and by the way, uh, spoilers for that movie, spoilers for every other version of this thing, spoilers <laughs> for the book. Right now, if you have never read The Body Snatchers and uh, the original one from 1956 or one of its slightly shifted versions of the novel, a reasonably slow reader can read it in one day off. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, Get it. Don't listen to this episode. Go read that book. Today's episode is primarily going to be about that book and then the 1956 uh, adaptation film invasion of the body snatchers and then we'll we'll see how far we get and then cut it there so um that but that version um from the 70s with uh donald sutherland with the like mouth agape eyes rolled back like scream at the when you it's revealed that he is uh he's been snatched is um, it's it's yeah. iconic visually, and it's the scariest movie, and it's maybe the grimmest one. And because of that, it it is the punchline is the best punchline to any of the Body Snatchers properties, and I think rightfully it has the highest 
It is the angel on top of the Christmas tree of Body Snatcher stuff. Where it's like, ah, that thing, if you could boil it all down, that final iconic moment at the end of that movie is is maybe the most compelling thing and encapsulates the, yeah, the, the dark message. There was, there was a wild air where um, Veronica Cartwright was professionally scared all the time. <laughs> She's OG. I'm, I'm fucking it up real bad. Yeah. I'm going to have to cut all this out so I sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Joan Lambert. She plays Lambert is the character. Look, we were inside and there was nothing around, so he volunteered to go down below. He found these egg things. Then we lost communication, and next thing we bring him up, and he's got this thing on his face. Lambert. I'm going to pull, I'm yeah. have to pull the, alien, the Nostromo patch off of my leather jacket and burn it in, 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 in shame for not remembering <laughs> that she played Lambert. And, and that will indicate to you today's episode is not going to be about the 1978 version because I, that will be a separate preparation. Yeah. Um, because this topic is so chunky, I'm taking it in pieces. So um, <laughs> what we're primar- primarily going to focus on today is the original Jack Finney novel from 1954, and then the first adaptation in 1956, which is strangely um, strangely our focus today, to the novel starring Kevin McCarthy and directed by Don Siegel. So those two, which are very close in content and style in terms of a film adaptation, um, are going to be our focus today. Oh, my body snatchers it was um it was copied and parodied uh all the way into our teenage years like like but the invasion of the body snatchers the concept entirely like not just the movie uh infected almost everything that we watch if there was a um cartoon that we liked like there was a body snatchers eek the cat yeah there was a body snatchers animaniacs there was a body snatchers space ghost yeah there was a body snatchers parody um everywhere yeah well well body snatchers and and we're starting to get enough um road behind us in the creation of episodes of this show where we're we're just beginning to kind of be able to observe patterns, I, not not in us, but in the it in monsters in that you can observe in culture, right? And the yeah. the body snatchers are perhaps the quintessential imposter monster. You know what I mean? I'm just, yeah. I'm and I, I and I don't say that like in a naive way because I think the world has probably had imposter monsters since the world has had like families. You know, we you can talk yeah. about changelings <laughs> yeah. and fairies going back millennia where, you know, the a changeling is your son or daughter has been taken away and replaced with a with a fairy uh, simulacrum that doesn't act right. And then who knows if that was a way that, you know, Germanic or Gaelic people ha- explained, you know, uh, they ended up having a kid who was like neurodiverse or who had a, like a mental issue. And they said, Oh, the fairies took the real baby away and gave us this one who doesn't act right. You know what I mean? The, the humans have had <laughs> stories for people not behaving the way you want them to behave probably forever. And um, 
the body snatchers are the most culturally profound and recognizable version of the imposter monster. And that's including uh, uh, us on this show being super fans of John Carpenter's The Thing, which is also one of the the most um, prominent imposter monsters. But that that monster also has a whole lot of other things going on where um, pod people and the body snatchers, basically the main thing they have going on is is pretending to be you. They actually don't do a lot more. They primarily do that one thing, but that one thing is extremely upsetting um, from a conceptual yeah. and like a mental health point of view. So, uh, uh, well, if, with that um, thought, let me get into where it exists in culture and its origins. So the, the, the Body Snatchers is a science fiction novel by American writer Jack Finney, originally serialized in Collier's Magazine in November and December 1954 and published in book form the following year by Dell Books. The novel describes the town of Mill Valley, which is a real place you can go to Mill Valley, in uh, California's Marin County. Basically, if you drive um, from San Francisco north across the the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, you will get into Marin County. Um, it is, uh, and then yeah. uh, Mill Valley is invaded by seeds that have drifted to Earth from space. The seeds grown from plant-like pods replace sleeping people with perfect physical duplicates with all of the same knowledge, memory, scars, etc., but are incapable of human emotion or feeling. The victims disappear forever. So that chunk was straight from the Wikipedia with a little bit of editorializing by me. I have my version of the whole plot of the book here. But have you ever read this book, Gavin? The original novel from the 50s? Uh, no. No, I've never read Body Snatchers. You should take you should take my copy. This is I think my second time reading it and rereading it was was interesting. I remembered it being of a different I remembered it being different than when I read it, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Um it's a it's very good. Uh the that that I'm glad held up. Basically, the book follows Dr. Miles Bennell and his new love interest, Becky Driscoll, who has just returned to town. They have a long-time relationship from their juvenile past, but are reluctant to get into anything serious due to the fact that both of them have been recently divorced. The book circles around this central topic of separation, loneliness, and walking the line of independence versus togetherness as perhaps its central theme, an element which is downgraded in the 1956 film. Becky finds Dr. Bunnell at his office, concerned for her friend Wilma, who appears to be under a bizarre but clear-eyed delusion that her uncle is not actually her uncle. Immediately, the crucial problem for the story is assembled, that certain of Mill Valley, California citizens are not only suspicious, but violently afraid of certain members of their family, caused by a deep-seated but elusive conviction that they are only replicas of their former selves. They are imposters of some kind. The sensitive but curious doctor starts soberly, where you would imagine, with the assumption that Wilma is suffering, perhaps only briefly, from a delusion that is idiosyncratic to her and her alone. When this delusion 
begins to spread to dozens of other people around town, including a handful of uh, his patients that stream into his office, Miles's concerns escalate. So, um, as uh, the, a casually romantic evening with Becky is interrupted when Miles, Miles's good friend, writer Jack Belichick and his spouse, pull them away from a mysteri- for a mysterious emergency, Jack refuses to explain until they actually put their eyes to it. Downstairs in the Belichick's billiard room lies a body under a canvas sheet of bizarre quality. It appears an average man, generic in size and build, but pages are spent as the couples study it and debate its queerness. They arrive uniformly that it is not a corpse, but rather something like an anti-corpse, a fully grown person who is not dead because they have not yet ever lived, unfinished from some alien process, and thus as yet out of focus. This is galvanized when... Miles employs Jack to help him take the body's fingerprints, and there are none. It produces a blank oval instead. What it, what has you chuckling in my synopsis, Gavin? I'm just picturing that unfinished fetus man. Well, you know they they do a good job of shooting around it and 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 describing rather than showing too much in in the '56 movie. But uh, in the book, it's terrifying, yeah. and there's this. You know the character, the the friend, the the, the yeah, friend that, Jack. Well, I'm not picturing the movie. Yeah. I'm picturing my own. Thing yeah, the, and, the, and friend, book, the friend, the friend Jack. Funny and there's a, there's a couple of times. There's three it's, or four times in the book, and this is one of the great things about books: is a character can spend a f- a few minutes giving an anecdote from life to like the way that people actually do to set up an idea, and obviously the char- the friend character of Jack. Um, who has this weird non-corpse in his house, has had time to, like, mull it over. And he gives this story about, you know, we went to, <laughs> I think, they was where they, either they went to D.C. or they went to the, the Hoover Dam and saw um, where they make um, medallions out of metal. And the, the way that they do it is they do a, they do a first pressing that's a, a half pressing, where it's just rough, and you can tell that there's kind of a shape of a head and a face, but the the heating of the metal and the details can't be done at the same time to finish the process as to start the process. And when they finish the first process, it's kind of halfway there and halfway baked. But then they go in and they do the detailed pressing, and it finally looks the way it's going to look when you actually get it as a consumer. And to him, this... Yeah body looks half-baked. It looks like a half-made medallion whose second pressing hasn't been done yet. And it's a... And, you know, the the thing about... The thing is about this <laughs> book is the characters are extremely real. And they have the... They have the questions and jokes and anxiety and curiosity that real people would have in this kind of thing. It is like, it shows the power of, um, kind of, 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 for a lack, you know, for not overarching hard sci-fi where everything is different, but surgical sci-fi, you know, kind of, Low fantasy as opposed to high fantasy. There's never a hat on top of a hat. There's one weird thing happening and everything else is exactly as it actually is. 
And that's the strength of this. Everybody feels real. The stakes feel real. The world feels real. Yeah, I, I used to get that feeling, actually, whenever we played um, All Flesh Must Be Eaten. <laughs> really? Because, like, yeah, because we would go on for about six or seven hours into the game with no zombies. Like, with just, like, weird things happening leading up to how we built our zombies. <laughs> I, your memory of that is much more cogent than mine, but I'll take your word for it. Oh, that game was scary. I love that game. We played it, like, only six or seven times, but every time was, like, a gem. I still have that book, um... Not at my place, but at a like uh, in a basement somewhere. I've seen it. I've seen uh, with, cool. uh, it's it is playable. You can just pull that copy out somewhere. So there's your plug for awesome. the for, there's your plug plug for the role playing game. Um, All flesh must be eaten. Who knows if that's even <laughs> still being published? But it's a of the thirty five thousand zombie role playing games you could play. It's not a bad one. It's the best one. They're notorious for their extraction of terrestrial human livers due to iron depletion in the reticulum galaxy. You can't be serious. Do you have any idea what liver and onions go for in reticulum? The couples go through various histrionics, including Miles discovering a, a burgeoning copy of Becky herself in the basement of her home, culminating in the Belichicks fleeing their home for the safety of Miles's place, which turns into a sort of Cold War anxiety whiskey soda sleepover. Finally, they loop in the help of Miles's friend and colleague, psychologist Manny Kaufman, who comes in the middle of the night and assists as the three men investigate the Belichick home, now vacant of the mysterious body. In a cool and careful way, Kaufman reestablishes order in the men's minds, having them convinced that they have all suffered from a mental contagion, a sort of thought virus causing them to find what their greatest anxieties have expected to find based on recent events. Long story short, after this lull in tension, Miles and Becky discover more irrefutable evidence and are actualized, for lack of a better term, in earnest against the pod people invasion. It's established that the blanks, as they are sometimes referred, are taking over telephone lines, sabotaging the roads, and jailing people on the bus, so the couples fixate on a plan to escape in the Belichick's car after Miles satisfies his desperate curiosity to locate the origin of this bizarre story by visiting a local teacher who is quoted extensively in the paper regarding the first documented sightings of the odd plant pods arriving in Mill Valley. Leaving the doctor's home on foot, Becky and Miles find the Belichicks in, a, in the middle of a high-speed chase from the Mill Valley police. Their plans unraveling before their very eyes, they will have to escape on their own. The remainder of the story is comprised of an elaborate exposition where, wherein from the, the high vantage point of his abandoned office, Miles and Becky watch the now totally blanked town distribute hundreds of pods to families to take to other towns throughout Northern California, followed by a calm but intimidating confrontation by a now potted up Jack and Kaufman, wherein the psychologist lays out the reality of the pod people's biology, their origin from traveling throughout deep space, as well as their destructive colonial perspective on the whole business. They will, for good or bad, replace every living thing on Earth until their five-year lifespan runs out. <laughs> 
and then off to the next destination. Becky and Miles contrive a delicately awkward escape plan by injecting their captors with morphine in a sort of anti-action movie back-alley syringe fight. With this brief <laughs> reprieve, Becky and Miles escape into the wilderness in an attempt to make it to the freeway and out of town, but by now they are delirious, kept awake only by Benzedrine tablets, and stalked by the full force of every able body in Mill Valley working in unison to cover the countryside and find them. Eventually, as they close toward what seems like a terribly unlikely escape guarded by millions, well, not millions, guarded by hundreds of Millvalians, Miles is disgusted by the discovery of the Pods Production Facility, a grotesque agricultural project on a captured farm at the edge of the county. Sickened and horrified, Miles and Becky move into action, their human instinct to destroy their enemies overtaking the essential goal of survival. They burn the field of pods with barrels and barrels of fuel, which attracts the attention of their captors. As the legion of dispassionate blanks march the couple back into town for their final podification, the last few pods not engulfed by their genocide suddenly take to the sky and zoom off back into space, which is summarily explained that they somehow realized that these little angry mammals called human beings, or Americans, are too strong of will, too violent, too ind independent of spirit for the space pods to waste their efforts on, and they will take their balls and go home someplace else. The story ends with the blanks folding into society, playing along, not causing any fuss, and dying away wordlessly in their brief little five-year lifespans, and the world returns to normal as if nothing strange had ever fallen out of the sky. So that is uh, the, the most efficient version of the whole novel that I could give. Um, and it's, I think it matters because we're going to probably spend at least, you're probably going to spend two episodes on on the body snatchers and understanding the understanding yeah. the DNA, so to speak of um, Jack Finney's original story, I think is useful. Yes. We're going to spend a lot. Now that I found out the faculty is basically yep. the body yep. directly based on it. You got a lot to say about the faculty. <laughs> right. Well, let's try to not get, <laughs> I have not watched the faculty in 20 years. So let's try not to die. I haven't too. seen it since the theater. How about this? Let's save the faculty it. for next episode and we'll be both yeah. be prepared for that. <laughs> the next, you know, you, this, in a way, this one will be spoiled because you'll know that I'm going to do the second half of body snatches. That's fine. But uh, I think no, it's, I think it's a, fine use of the format i think it's good so we'll have we'll, the faculty to talk we'll put the pack of the, we'll put the, let's put the faculty <laughs> in our back pocket but um what else is jumping out to you based <laughs> off of that extreme that that synopsis what is coming into your mind now about the body snatchers well um the most recent thing is i didn't know what benzedrine was and that that's <laughs> <laughs> that's amphetamine. That's oh, yeah. I guess that's what Benny's or yeah, yeah, very common mid twentieth century uh, get 'em up pills, um, go yeah, go, -go pills. Uh, yeah, the reds, yellow jackets. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Benny's. Um, <laughs> yeah, I imagine that trying to run away from a paranoia is like um, keeping yourself awake. Yeah. To survive a paranoid thing. Is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't make anything of it because, of course, a la 1956, a, 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 an MD 
using Benzedrine tablets that he has in his office that he can just give out with any kind of record of it is like the most banal thing in the world. <laughs> there is, yeah, there, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> it, you, you learn a lot. Um, I think culturally in terms of what's interesting about the, the book and then the 1956 um, movie is the things that they don't pay attention to are, are really fascinating. Um, <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm not going to jump. I'm not going to jump directly to the to the crux that I, you know, my my ultimate thesis that I that I feel about the body snatchers. But yeah, the things that they ignore um, as a movie, uh, really about the greatest generation, is um, it says a lot. You know, there's a there's a lot of drinking and and casual pill handing out. Uh, and, yeah. um, you know, if somebody's dressed down, they're still wearing a, a full nightgown, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's, it's, sti- it's still yeah. a very people that fought the, the World War Two battles generation <laughs> movie and, and book like yeah. that. It's really right there. And I, I made, I made specific note that Jack Finney was exactly dead on in the middle of the greatest generation. He was born in 1911, which is like right, right on it. Yeah. The book, like I said, I, I've tipped my hand. I really like the book, despite the fact that the ending is a total cop out where the bad guys are like, ah, you guys are going to fight us and you never mind. Um, despite that, um, the book is, is fantastic. It's, it's not just, um, good sci-fi fodder. Uh, the, the main character of Miles is, he's subtle, he's intelligent, he's a character who feels realistic and intimate, and his burgeoning relationship with Becky is a delight, despite some of the inherently masculine bullshit trash from 1954. Um, the characters apply cleverness and sensitivity to both the major crisis as well as their interpersonal dynamics and the world feels incredibly real not fake or dated even from a night you know even from a reading in 2021 everybody should go read this book if you've never seen the movies if you have seen the movies it's like maybe two afternoons of reading and it, it's very good and the characters are so much more thoughtful and thorough and feel like real people from your grandparents or great grandparents generation than almost any novel from that era that I've read. Um, so (laughs) it's good. Hit up your local library or I'm almost certain it's free on your, uh, on your tablet in some form or fashion. Yeah, this is probably free. Cause I'm sure Gavin, everybody has, um, even if it's just in like uh, some other culture, the thing from the 1956 movie starring Kevin McCarthy, um, yeah. the, the thing that you see is his is him running wild in the street trying to stop cars and get them to listen to yeah. him that they're that you're next, they're coming for you. My wives, my children, everyone. And that like panic part, it is it is all it is the culmination and it is the punchline the same way that Donald Donald Sutherland doing the like lean back meme scream is the punchline of the 1978 movie. And the the movie um, is also quite good. I I won't rank it uh, as strong as the book, but, you know, when whenever is a movie adaptation as strong as the book. 
Um, Kevin McCarthy can be quoted as as agreeing with my ultimate issue, which is the the expedience necessary to create to translate the character into a scripted version who can get from scene to scene really vacuums out the best parts of the Dr. Miles Bennell character and really all the other characters. Um, And it also makes it more of a, the doctor is the star and a quasi action hero, as opposed to just being the protagonist in the novel who specifically on a few occasions describes how he's not an action movie hero and he can't like beat up four guys (laughs) to facilitate their escape. You know, it just just doesn't work that way. And like Becky's like, well, there's two of us also there. If they attack us, they're also going to imagine I'm going to act like I'm in a movie as a lady cowering in the corner. But if I don't, we can, we can win. And, uh, and there's really intelligent conversations like that where, you know, the two of them each armed with a more, with a, with two, um, morphine syringes, like take down these, these four, uh, four blanks that are going to take them into jail and, uh, escape in a way that feels as awkward and plausible as reality. And that's, it's one of the many ways that the book is very strong. Unfortunately, for just the, the needs of Hollywood, most of, a lot of this, this contour and detail is steamrolled over for the anxieties of the studio and production. So that, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who, um, I, I like, um, because, uh, I don't know how well you remember this, but do you remember that he played kind of the facilitator backroom uh, cigar smoking bad guy in inner space? There's something about you. Please. You have changed. You're different. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, that's what the, the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> okay. Was he's the bad guy from inner space. Yeah. He's yeah. like the, he, yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. like a, there's like a handful of bad guys in inner space, not the least of which being, uh, what is it? What I can never remember the name of the character. What's the, the character's actual name from Ward Road Warrior? Zeb, Nez, Biz, Swizz. What's, oh, um, Wes. Wes, right. The guy who plays Wes. Yeah. Wes was, Wes was his henchman. Who got in the his own little inner space pod, right? And, <laughs> and then got digested, right? And then gets into <laughs> gets gets into a like a yeah. across the dinner table confrontation with Robert Picardo, who is secretly Martin Short. Yeah. If any, if yeah. any, if, any, if anybody's if anybody's na- like having their brains scrambled right now, you really need to watch Inner Space. Um, you need to watch Inner Space. Because you need to at least watch the scene where um, Richard Picardo turns into Martin Short. <laughs> yeah, with the... <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. It is... <laughs> Cowboy, stop it. Don't do that. I was just kidding. Please, Cowboy. One more. It's only a joke. Inner space, inner space may be the best Martin Short total, except for maybe like three amigos, because he is, um, he's not like he's not vamping twelve out of ten in every scene. He's got like a mix of 
small, medium, and large scenes where when he gets to go totally batshit, it's actually earned, as opposed to most things that he's in, where he's just, like, running around like a a tiny, white (laughs) Eddie Murphy on cocaine. (laughs) It's just like, look at me, look at me, theater, theater. Whereas, like, Inner Space, like, he actually earns the scenes where he goes batshit, and it's way better. Yeah. Um, But in Inner Space, Kevin McCarthy kind of plays the... um, I don't know the 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 puppet master bad guy who is who's the arch yeah. villain o- over top of the lieutenant villains, and he's very good at he, it. He um, named his his limousine Sub Zero. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a it's a good movie. It's stupid, but it's really yeah. Good. I think you and I may be one of the only people on the planet who are going to argue that Inner Space is one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> Man, if you can have a scene, I was not. I knew I was going to talk about interspace, but I did not prepare that much for it. I was just like, I know interspace is going to come up. I just don't know how much. But if you can have a scene where, um, what's what's his fucking butt? Dennis Quaid. Yeah. This is a movie where Dennis Quaid is trapped inside a, a microscopic like robot drone zooming yeah, around inside of Martin voyage. Short's body, right? And then through a secondary plot device where he is injected into his love interest played by Meg Ryan, that he accidentally gets into the zoom of the into the the, into the zone of her womb and in real time sees his own unborn child as a fetus in her womb as like a colossal being who's like hard who is like echoing yeah it's heartbeat is like waving over him as like a like a rhythmic thunder and like cries while like drinking I don't. I, it's like sweat vodka or something that he's got. I. It's no. He. Yeah. He makes Martin Short drink a bunch of whiskey so he can drink whiskey. Right. With that, you also have Robert Picardo <laughs> plays a weird kind of like Central American or like arm. Armenian, Brazilian, a, a, a confusing of. brown <laughs> yeah. face mercenary for some reason called the cowboy, yeah. who is kind of like a sexy yeah. killer who deals Don in, in stolen. He deals in stolen cutting edge. But tech. The, the but the rub is that he almost immediately gets infiltrated by Martin Short in the Martin Sh- in, God damn it in the plot device by which they can do <laughs> shit to fuck you fuck your body up they're able to make Martin Short look like the Robert Picardo character so Robert Picardo ends up playing the character of the Martin Short character but it doing an impersonation of this dumbass, ridiculous Don Juan, Robert Picardo, cowboy mercenary for most of the time yeah. he's on screen. Yeah. And then getting into this scene that we previously re- like discussed where they try to prove whether it's actually <laughs> him by testing his famous pain tolerance by putting cigars out on his skin. I wonder, miss, if cowboys ever told you of his incredible tolerance for pain. Is what? He's what? What? His ability to withstand pain. Why, his stoicism is legendary. And then that results in this... 
terrifying, like, <laughs> like nightmare scene between Robert Picardo and the, the FX, special effects team, which transitions into Martin Short, where their faces are, like, bouncing around <laughs> like, um, a, like a total, I don't know, Armenian discotheque fuckfest. Okay, d- yeah, does everybody know whenever you put your face against glass and, like, blow onto the g- glass so your mouth becomes big? <laughs> right. L- like, Robert Picardo did that for this scene, and they, like, um, filtered it and edited it so that it, the, you don't see a glass, you don't see that happening. It's like a split second of his mouth going, I can see what it is, is they ran the film, they ran it in, they ran the film at the wrong speed. They ran it in fa- yeah. like in slow motion, which means they're blasting through the frames. And it's not like it's on glass. I guarantee that there is a grip five inches off of frame with has oh, to be a like leaf with a, blower. With a wind it's thing? gotta be a, it's there's yeah, no like way it's not blower. a leaf blower from that distance. <laughs> I I gar- I fucking guarantee it. And, and I it must have been four hours of Robert Picardo just like cussing. And marching around being like, I'm in a fucking union and deciding whether to walk off the set. But anyway, we've totally gotten nine goddamn miles off of the show. But punchline, watch Inner Space. Yeah. Uh, I save this for later. Hi there. My name is Douglas Rassensberger, and I'm a CEO and founder of Douglas's Cutlasses. Have you ever found yourself in this situation? You've just gotten home from a long day of spurring growth at your small but thriving business. You're just trying to slice some quality deli meats and cheeses for a relaxing snack, and suddenly there's a mysterious intruder rummaging through your garbage outside. What's a domestic disruptor to do when you get in a pickle like this? Pull out your handy-dandy, short-handled, half-guarded navel sword, that's what. Here at Douglas and Colors, we've got every possible colors for every conceivable scenario. Are you an aspiring or current CEO of a Fortune 500 company? I've got a color for that. A middle school teacher struggling to maintain discipline in the classroom? I've got a color for that. Looking to add a little flair to drab dinner parties? I've got a color for that. Some people say to me, but Douglas, I'm not a pirate, privateer, or sailor. What do I need with a battle-quality 27-inch half-guard naval sword? I'm so glad you asked. Here at Douglas's Cutlasses, our research shows that the vast majority of conflicts, both business and personal, can be positively affected by the introduction of a modest, well-crafted naval sword. So let's get swashbuckling. No matter what's your problem, an easy-to-wield iron forged cutlass is probably the solution. So once again, I'm Douglas Raffensperger of Douglas's Cutlasses. Come get stabby with me. Please go to paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters and make a payment there. And that's oops with two O's. Again, that link is paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters. Oh, Kevin McCarthy is also the bad guy in UHF. That's right. He's there was a period in yeah. like the eighties where he was kind of just the like um, kind of boat shoes, old money, symmetrical white dude with schemes. 
that he yes. was really good. People's prejudices really lent to him playing those characters. And you, you can see it. He's airy. Yeah. He's got kind of a weird, pointy, almost like kind of Kennedy nose. Uh, it's a, like yeah. when you cast when you cast for type, then his cast is kind of like scary patriarch with money. You know, yeah, um, he looks like he wears suits and disapproves of things. It's it's it makes sense. But it, but in the nineteen fifty six, but in the nineteen fifty six film, his uh, his portrayal is quite good. He does he does a lot with a script that doesn't necessarily give them a lot. Unfortunately, the story of the production is that the studio um, had them cut out specifically all of the humorous moments, that there was a lot of joking around, which created a lot more depth for the characters, which was more matching the actual novel. And then that got pulled out because the studio felt like it didn't, it, it was just, it was combining humor and sci-fi slash thriller just didn't go, which ultimately I guarantee was wrong. I, sw- I, I would kill for somebody to find all of that somewhere in the in a in a, in a basement so that somebody could put together the the extra eight minutes of um invasion of the body snatchers with all of the characters joking with each other because oh my god it would be so good but uh the point is that the film is pr- the film is pretty good and both the film the, the film and the novel are strangely similar. The 1956 film, however, it get, they changed the name to Invasion of the Body Snatchers to make sure that it is not accidentally confused with the Boris Karloff film about the related to the Burke and Hare uh, killings of the 1800s. Oh yeah, um, yeah. which may yeah. may come up on the show eventually because I'm a big Karloff fan and the Burke and Hare. Uh, the Burke and Hare body snatching, which actually wasn't really body snatching, it was basically murders um, for body production, is a, such an incredible topic. I would love to to, to cover that on this show. But um, they 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 after all of these terrible titles that they wanted to change it to, just added invasion of the beginning, and that's where you get the title of the movie. The other primary differences are double spoilers, 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 because I'm specifically going to spoil the movie now. Is that the uh, romance uh, part? <laughs> romance partner character in the movie Becky she unlike in the book gets blanked gets she falls asleep unfortunately at a moment that causes her to get podizized she gets poderated or whatever it is if you turn it into a verb and so it is actually in a way <laughs> in the movie it's more bleak because um, Dr. Bennell is left totally on his own, which is causes the the um, the scenes that are so famous of him running around desperate on the street, trying to flag down cars, screaming, you're next, you're next, you're next. And actually, that was how that film was supposed to end. But after some test screenings, some some jackholes from Iowa must have said, that was too sad. My wife didn't didn't want to do the porridge at the end of the night after watching it. So you ought to do it different. <laughs> so the, the caving to popular uh, opinion, the, the studio um, ally decided to put bookends on the front and beginning where... What was that? Order was restored and everything was fine. Where, But unfor- originally it was meant to end with him breaking the fourth wall and like practically grabbing the camera and screaming you're next, you're next right into the lens, which have been is a much more <laughs> powerful version 
version. And I, I wish we had gotten that. But you can imagine if you just cut off yeah. the bullshit bookends of the movie, kind of like watching the theatrical version of Blade Runner. As other reviewers of the book have gotten into the practice of noting, the junior high school version of the lesson about uh, the body snatchers is that it's about communism and the Red Scare in the 1950s. But um, Mr. Yeah. Cool Teacher uh, sits back in his chair to tell you that that is not actually the case. Additionally, um, the author, Jack Finney, as well as all of those associated with the atypically faithful 1956 film, are vociferous in shouting it from the rooftops that they did not make a political allegory about communism or mid-century witch hunting or fascism in America or any other kind. And I am here to say that despite the fact that here on uh, Oops All Monsters, we know that the author is dead and nobody cares about their intent, that the Body Snatchers is not, in fact, a political allegory. I feel that um, based off of what I'm looking yeah. at, it's easy to see this vi- the very strong indications in a certain way toward that. But the pod people, the blanks, whatever you want to call them, they are a terrible stand-in for any version of the 1950s political landscape that you can slice together. In a way, it's it's like the original Romero zombies, in that they are a yeah. uh, multi-service utility allegory, which seems like it can indicate all sorts of different dreadful crises. That it, it, You can push it in lots of different directions, and it seems... Uh, compelling. But if we look at a comparison, let's real quick look at the the factual differences as laid out by primarily the novel, but to a certain extent also the 1956 film, uh, a verse of humans versus pods. So pod people versus humans are as thus. Humans are independent, violent, ambitious, tormented, resilient, sexual, and loving and passionate. Where in contrast, pod people are interlinked, passively dominant, content with their situation, calm, brittle, asexual, and flat and blank. And if you, if you take that juxtaposition of what are humans and real people quote-unquote, like. And what are pods or blanks like? The pods are, they're interconnected, they have passive power, they're content, they're not, they're not, they're, they're, they're mild-mannered about their situation, and they're specifically, and specifically not ambitious. There's a lot of um, hay made about that you no longer have love or ambitions or needs or desires. You're just cool. You're still yourself, but you're really cool, man. You're not worried about anything anymore. Um, You're brittle (laughs) as opposed to resilient. You can be, you can be broken. You're no longer interested in sexual pairings, mating, love partners, and that you're not the, this, this secret fire underneath. That's like creating 
all of the emotions and power that come from the human animal are gone. That you can do an impression of it, that what uh, blanks do is they pantomime it, they fake it, but it's not really there. They're just doing their best impression. It's not, it, they're dead behind the eyes. And that, um, some of that you can kind of cram into an anti-communist agenda about how oh, well, people they don't put work into you know cleaning up their shops and maintaining the streets and blah 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 but you know that it doesn't really fit an anti-soviet agenda or a cold war agenda or a communists infiltrating you know the united states senate agenda it just doesn't uh easily fit into that it i don't know if it really cleanly fits into any specific allegory, and and Finney has uh, really pounded his fists on the table, meanting uh, by saying, "I just made a scary thriller. It's not really a secret anything," and I believe him in that. But it's not really his job to say whether it fits in for something else. We can always look at it in retrospect and say, "Well, ultimately, it was about this or that or the other." I don't see anything that's a really clean drop in the closest things that i could see are as follows primarily um it it you could take all of those uh juxtapositions of humans versus the pods that the pods are interconnected they're kind of passively taking over they're content they're calm they're brittle asexual flat and blank and say it's it's the greatest generation's anxiety about the next generation to come, whether it be the boomers or what have you. And, uh, you know, there, there are ways in which all of those things are kind of the things that every generation says that they're worried about the next generation being is that, you know, they're, it's kind of, they're lazy. They're everywhere. They're too, you know, particularly about like Gen Zers is, Oh man, they're so connected, <laughs> in it, but it's also terrible somehow. Like they're, they're <laughs> they are everywhere. They're they're too brittle. They're snowflakes. They're they they're you know they're soy boys. They're not they're not sexual enough. There's no passion. They're not you know they're 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 cucks and they're they're not like dealing with proper <laughs> heterosexual American values. Like a lot of those things, more so than than communism, actually fit into an overall allegory. If you had to come up with one, if you could say that like oh somehow the greatest generation was anticipating like Gen Z or something but you know that it doesn't really get there but a, ge <laughs> a, a, a general nostalgia on one end versus generational generational replacement in a way is, is kind of compelling except for the fact that in the book as well as the movie in a very typical greatest generation style they completely ignore the existence of children whatsoever except for it's like one plot device about a, a boy who comes into his office who's no longer thinks his mother is actually his mother in in, in every other case in the movie children basically don't exist and that's both yeah. in the book and in the film. The greatest generation is uh, notably completely ignorant of their the generation of their own children. Uh, they're way too busy drinking uh, gin and 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 mowing the lawn. So uh, <laughs> there, there's 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 that, and I think either of those. Um, uh, well, I think the the generational observation it it can be interesting, but it doesn't. 
it doesn't fit as some kind of like genius um, a film paper allegory that I could come up with. Um, ultimately, maybe after um, doing another episode later on about the 1978 film and about the two sa- 2007 film with uh, Vigo and What's-Her-Face uh, and about the faculty and the other pieces of culture that are related to the uh, the, the body <laughs> snatchers that uh, I will have I may have a second final like oh it was all it was all about factory farms or some bullshit but right now I, I don't know that there's <laughs> something clean but it's a really philosophical debate of fatalism versus existentialism or another way to look at it is, Fate versus free will is do you have the juice as an an independent agent to conquer obstacles, you know, that that the the pods and the blanks can just represent the oppression of life itself and that although he didn't mean it, he accidentally created a story that is the great American spirit, the individual's drive to succeed, to thrive, to not just maintain, but to dominate life for his individual good, for the good of his family and his community and the country. And that feeling going away is what the actual anxiety is about. And that there is a possibility of slipping into a, an idea that everything is, everything is fixed, that the pods and their casual, calm, like prodding to say, like, this is all gonna happen. So just like go to sleep, you know, like the, the, don't worry. We're inevitable. They're not stressing, you know, they, they don't come in with, with machine guns. To and clobber you over the head and drag you to jail, they say, like, you're going to go to sleep eventually. This is going to happen. We're going to win. We're just going to wait. So you might as well go to sleep. It is a very passive power that they have. And the just go to sleep, this is going to happen, like, thread, It, it, I think it is... the, The one thing that it does feel like it can symbolize is just giving up in any general sense of saying like, it's not up to me, you know, people in, um, people in psychology or in, uh, more modern ways of thinking would describe this as where is your locus of control? Meaning do you have an external locus of control for things in your life or an internal locus of control for things in your, or your life? Meaning do you ascribe the, just how things go for you as being related to your behavior or uncontrollable things in the world happening to you. That is the difference between an internal and external locus of control. And basically where that lives is kind of ultimately what pods versus humans is about is either the reality or illusion that Dr. Miles Bennell is in control of events is his power. Like whether it's actually true that he is or not, maybe adjacent to the important bit, uh, which is his thinking that he is in control of it is his strength. 
and that maybe it's inevitable because of the terrible, violent nature of the human mammal, or in a less cynical way, the incredible, indomitable spirit of the American citizen in the 1950s, having you know beaten Jerry <laughs> and stepped on fa- stepping on fascism and the Rosie the Riveters st- strangling the Hun and the Japanese war machine with the you know the motorcycle chain of industry and saying we do not. <laughs> Give up. We will never give up. We will we will fight you in the cubicles. We will fight you next to the water coolers. We will fight you on the spreadsheets. Um, We are Americans. We're not smart enough to understand French existentialism. So therefore, we don't realize that everything is fixed. So we will fight you with guns. And and that is (laughs) is perhaps the the ultimate thesis of what. Um, Miles versus the space pods is, is he's either too American or violent or ballsy or strong or intelligent. It depends on your reading of the strength and weaknesses of his character to give up. And his thrashing and, and gnashing and burning his enemy with um, farm gasoline um, and tractor fuel as an old, like a last minute, fuck you, you will not replace us, is a, a version of like, I, I, my fate is not decided by you. I, um, I have control over my fate, which is this speaker is quite aware of, always ironic to say, because if it's fate, you don't have control over it. <laughs> yeah. No, that was all really good. But I have a question. Um, since I didn't read the book, um, is there any uh, other other than the um, non fully formed non corpse uh, that you mentioned in the book? Is there any like uh, abomination thing similar to the dog face? Or the human no, face dog. the 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 do- at, at least not in this movie or the book. There are uh, like it's handled more thoroughly than you might expect in the novel in a way where they they do give you enough to be like okay, all right. But it's also still you want a lot more. But that's also you know good writing. In that ultimately the process yeah. is somebody like the meter man comes into your basement on a Tuesday and leaves like this pod. Like maybe it's like big as a beach ball or a pumpkin and the pod like cracks open and this like gray fluffy kind of like ooze slash fog like comes out of it. And from that like starts forming a replica of you and you have to be asleep. And if you wake up, it like presses stop on the VCR of this process. Uh, And so if you, if, if it does, if you just wake up in your normal manner, because it's bacon time, like it might not have had enough time to, to, to like fully bake. So maybe it'll have to wait until next night to be done. Presumably this is what happened to the Jack Belichick character. And then in that, in that like zone, there is a partially baked version of this uh, blank in your crawl space or your basement or wherever they're hiding it. 
and you're still totally fine. Until the bell rings on the new one being made, you're like completely yourself. Um, and then finally, once it's totally done, weirdly they explain that you disappear, but they never like, that's never actually resolved. They're never like, what the fuck is disappearing? Like basically there's like another kind of like a uh, fluff where you were, but it just like flows away in the wind or something like they don't, they don't properly explain yeah. what happens to the, to the, you know, Jack prime in that case. But, um, there, there aren't any of these, <laughs> yeah, like Grendel fly accidents that, that uh, makes sense if, you know, actually, you know what? Here's, here's my caveat to that. Um, there's actually a specific plot device in the book, but not the movie where they intentionally create a misfiring that is similar, but not so similar where, um, Kaufman and the other pod goons have decided to let Becky and uh, Dr. Bennell just kind of like have their last evening um, cloistered away in his doctor's office away. So and eventually they'll go to sleep and it'll be fine. And in order to facilitate an escape, the first thing that they do is they know that there's two pods like out in the lobby that are going to they're going to pod them when they fall asleep. But they're the last two pods in town because all of the yeah. other ones have been sent to Sausalito and shit. Uh, so all they have to do to like temporarily fuck up the <laughs> the podish plan is to ruin those two pods, um, and then they'll have to be like you know they'll get at least like half a day where some pods will have to be made. So what they do is the the doctor has actually a pair of real human skeletons in his office for reasons and so what they do is they shove over uh -huh. them over close to the door and lay them down and like pull some of their own blood and spritz it all over these um skeletons and cut some of their hair and throw it down so the like really rudimentary rudimentary like process of those pods gets like tricked by the like skeleton abominations. Yeah. And so those two pods, because yeah. it is it is life in a fashion, it, it, it's like organic beings that have DNA and yada, yada, yada. It, they try to mimic yeah. the skeleton uh, scarecrows, the skeleton crows or whatever. And so that that is an important step yeah. in ruining Kaufman and Friends pod scheme for the time being. And so that's the closest thing to like the, the human face dog is that there is a mechanism Whoa. by which the dirty business of trying to copy whatever is around can be fucked up. So in a way, yes. Yeah. Man, if I was making the movie, I would put like half skeleton zombie people in it because it was fold. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was like, look, look at these fucked up pod things that are not pod people. Yeah, so the pod there, people yeah, don't like there them. There is a, and we don't do like say, them. How would you describe this? There is a kind of like a, what seems like a fairly small plot hole, but if you actually like stick your fist in there and start stretching it, it gets really wide really quick. Of 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 like uh, that the <laughs> yeah. pods yeah. like 
originally started trying to just mimic any organic matter around them. So in the book, the organic matter that they tried to replicate was like a can of Del Monte peaches and a uh, a wooden a wooden axe handle, and they successfully <laughs> did both of those, but they didn't get them anywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, great. Now you're a can of peaches and an axe handle. If you were yeah. that blind <laughs> yeah. to like which things would be useful to approximate, like there would be all sorts of nonsensical like juxtapositions between when you just happen to be across the room from like a lasagna and a Doberman pincher. You know what I mean? <laughs> you have like <laughs> yeah. a lasagna pincher. Thank you for the delicious cookies. Well, um, I don't know. Uh, what Jack Finney really was trying to say. Sometimes a monster is just a monster. And um, you can draw from really primal fears to make your monster. And a big uh, fear of anybody's is losing their identity. Absolutely. And um, being taken over by something else. Losing control. And um, also uh, assimilation is, is a pretty big paranoia type thing but um if i was were living in the 50s and i was reading this uh, i would kind of and and i had to put it into like a uh uh social social political allegory i would say that the fear of it would be the conformity of what america would be becoming post war which is just like um cookie cutter houses next to each other everybody's got uh 3.5 kids and um picket fences and all of that like um just making one after another like uh like a factory instead of a uh living society of actual yeah ab- abso- absolutely and that yeah. is it is one of the you know if this if jack finney is making like a stew then the anxiety about um, the anxiety created by forced conformity is, you know, it, it's maybe the onions or the carrots. It is an it is an element because yeah. there's something about homogeneity. Oh, I said it right the first time. There is something about um, there's something about <laughs> homogeneity or being extremely homogenous that I think facilitates paranoia and there because because everybody's true self is disguised and if so if everybody's aware wearing a mask you know if everybody's wearing if everybody's wearing a mask the value of being able to observe people for the quality of their mask is diminished and so in addition to being plausibly a movie about free will versus fate or determinism this is absolutely uncontrovertibly a movie about paranoia it isn't necessarily a movie about this political event or that political perspective it's not necessarily political paranoia but it is a paranoia film because the, the the saying like i am starting from a premise where we're having a large scale delusion to the people around me are part of a wide overarching conspiracy is you know the the 1950s were experiencing 
a major paranoiac event that went on for years and years and years. And it didn't just go away after everybody realized that the Army McCarthy hearings were crap. I mean, the paranoia, it dovetailed directly into the long-term Cold War anxiety. It was not a separate and distinct event. It's not like you got to 1961 and we found the Beatles. Everybody can stop worrying. It was just like shit just got just changed the mood ring shifted to orange as opposed to purple. It was just a different version of paranoia and anxiety. And it was, you know, more about the reality of the atomic bomb or does it get picked, you know, does it get picked up by the Libyans or what is there to worry about? But that, you know, the, the Soviets or space aliens or whatever kind of are alien enough that they seem far off and distant And that our paranoia as a country now is a different thing because the the way that we have tensions with our neighbor is really more like the civil war than it is about the cold, than it is like the cold war. It's like those people are wrong and his name, his name is Dave. And my anxiety about it is that Dave is also part of some kind of like special network that is controlled by the lizard people. And there are, there are, there are related, you know, when you get into like the lizard people talk, there's ways that they're like, I would like to have a scoop of body snatchers in my like fucked up paranoid conspiracy theory Sunday, but it's not the whole Sunday. The whole Sunday is very complex, but you know, one scoop of that is going to be like full on snatchers, please. Could you shut up? Okay. A thruple, a thruple is just a full on, a thruple is just a full on, not a couple, but a thruple. Three, we're three of us and we're all part of a, we're all one thing as opposed to like somebody's a spare or somebody's (laughs) a thruple. Yeah. Yeah. It's self-explanatory. Like, like all great neologisms, it explains (laughs) itself given its um, extant parts. Which part of that was funny? Uh, Welcome to Sentences with Aaron. All great it explains itself. Describing every It's a, it's from an enter, it's Entertainment Weekly fifty photos of Jeffrey Dean Morgan. <laughs> e need that. And the 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 one I. On the, because <laughs> you're an asshole and you don't ever read. You just look at pictures of people and and <laughs> groom your dog. I don't know. <laughs> I got like fucking most assholes. Um, like most assholes. Regular people <laughs> can't stand. It. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm I did all this homework about pod people and now I'm sassy. But. It, the, <laughs> Some some underpaid graphic design in intern was was made, forced to assemble these three photos of yeah. primarily yeah. dimples that are uh, that are that are uh, satellites around Jeffrey Dean Morgan's indomitable <laughs> half-assed <laughs> smile. You see, <laughs> like he always looked like he's just taken a shit in the top of your commode. And it's just walked downstairs like, oh, thanks. I'd love a champagne. You fucking 
idiot. <laughs> it's indomitable. Half-ass. He always smile. looks. His smile, his smile is it's like always just the top yeah. row of teeth. Like he's just about to be like Kermit in that Sesame Street episode where Kermit gets teeth and he's going like <laughs> You're like, God damn it, I didn't realize Kermit can be scary. He's like, What's wrong? <laughs> We're all eating now. <laughs> But he has like he has a he has a terrible <laughs> smile. I've, I'm I'm only now realizing because it's like it's it's lovely it's lovely and untrustworthy. <laughs> I can't I can't tell you. He's either the it's best or the worst person in the typecast world. Is this I new um, this new form of villain who is lovable. Right? I mean, you know, like, Castro couldn't have been in charge that whole time because he was yeah. a complete insufferable <laughs> son of a bitch. There had to be elements of Castro that were totally captivating. I mean, I don't mean to say that you can't be in charge without being a total, like, awful cunt. But, like, I'll, if you're going to be in yeah. charge for, like, 70 years, you have to ride a roller coaster of, of, of situations where it's not... It's not easy to be in charge. Jeffrey Dean Morgan has the charisma of, like, somebody who could be in charge of a nation state for, like, 60 years. And I'm like, you're awful and likable, you son of a bitch. You know? Like, he's he's stabbing you, and you're like, I knew this was going to (laughs) happen, but, ah, man, didn't know it was going to be today. Did he make a baseball bat pun? That's adorable. (laughs) Oh, he killed one of us. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's you know he's wearing a different kind of leather jacket and and wielding a crowbar and he's helping Carol out and you're like ah oh, you rascal yeah, you rascal you know who beat our beloved I mean, Glenn way- to death. <laughs> yeah, oh, just I was trying to not think about Glenn even though he's on my screen right now. I I was trying I was really not. I mean, I think the audience by now would realize that I'm not, I, you know, one of the reasons I like doing these describing sequences is it frees me up from trying to have like an intelligent thought. <laughs> but like, I think that I, I think I accidentally stumbled on one anyway, in the sense that, you know, I think that Jeffrey Dean Morgan is good at encapsulating America in itself because he's like really charming, but he's just fucking beating you with a yeah, fucking I'm, club when you turn I've around. I've said this. You know, I've said, Zack Snyder made the comedian modern day America instead of how the comic book comedian was written. Well, and but I mean the uh, the concept of the comedian I know, isn't I necessarily not but, like the, the got, original he, graphic novel character. The the movie Go with ahead. Jeffrey Dean Morgan and um, Zack Snyder making him kick ass made it like even more so. Like be America, be bad America, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan was like can do. I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I think your point is exactly right. That like they filled ironically in a piece of media that barely got to cover any character for even close to sufficient enough to get across their basic plot points. They somehow were able to through the visual medium of cinematic storytelling expand upon the fact that the comedian was actually a symbolic universal soldier mercenary like psychopath 
terrible thing that is, in a way, the core of the the terrible thing that, like, is American. The yeah. way that, like, being a mercenary and a capitalist are the same, where you are without morality because you are instead just a sellsword. Yeah. And, like, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is able to... to 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 embody that because it feels like somebody that you're that you like have to sell drinks to at your like shack bar that you've set up to sell whiskey to GIs now that they burn down your village until eventually hopefully they go the fuck away (laughs) but you have to be really nice to them and be sharp on like making those drinks while they're still there and like you like develop this Doberman grin of charm in order to survive the total nightmare reality of being both charming and a psychopath (laughs) and everybody having to like deal with your shit because you're too big of an operator in the room. But yeah, Jeffrey. Okay. We nailed it. Jeffrey Dean Morgan is America. Uh, end of, uh, end of bit. We're going to move on to somebody else. I knew that. Yeah. He's, he's got a ranch in a, in a, in a TV show where he welcomes you into his home and then he plays on television <laughs> a man who beats Glenn to death. <laughs> well, in future, continue to do me the favor yeah. of not of not convincing me of the final, <laughs> you know, thesis in the first episode. So when we get to our next describing segment that we don't, you know, I don't have to come up with another person to describe the next episode following that. Just continue to placate me and string me along. Okay. Cause it's makes for, makes for better show. So uh, <laughs> how do we almost the end of the show? It's almost Break. the end of the show. And that brings us to the end of our time with you, dear reader. Until next time, when we deliver you another batch of beasts, bullywugs, and bulls of flesh-eating dessert fluff. If you'd be so kind as to tell a friend or support us by throwing Oops All Monsters a five-star review on iTunes, it really does help. I also have a sassy Twitch channel, which is Gavin Longshanks Twitch. And uh, don't forget that is in our link tree, wherever you can find our link tree, such as on the Instagram or on our homepage, you can find Gavin's Twitch channel there. So also share an episode on your favorite social media and hit up our Instagram for the images that go along with each episode, including the Jeffrey Dean Morgans and other describings that we're talking about on the episode. It makes it a lot funnier, I promise. And comment on those Instagrams and also send us suggestions for monsters and also send us stories about your role-playing games to oopsallmonsters at gmail.com where we'll have some type of plan for role-playing game stories. We really, really will once you send them in. Uh, and if you want to toss a coin into the potion fund, hit us up with a one-shot contribution at paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters. Or if you're feeling really froggy, sign up at patreon.com slash oopsallmonsters. Lastly, I have to thank my wonderful friend Katie for our incredible theme song. Her work as part of the duo The Darling Kathleen's can be found on YouTube at The Darling Kathleen's. And with that, I have been Hess. And I have been Gavin. 
And this has been Oops, Oops. All Pod Jeffrey people. Dean. Jeffrey Dean Pod People. Jeffrey Dean's American Pod People. From life, that's just that's from life. What, we were in how did that, Charlie's attic. How did that go? And um, we were all playing a game, except for Stuart and Charlie, <laughs> oh, who were asleep. And Stuart like rolled over on top of Charlie, <clears throat> and Charlie pushed him off and said, "I'm a marauder. Move over." Like he just said that in his sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a marauder. Yeah. Move over. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, now, yeah, I would have guessed within like eighty percent of that story. It was pretty funny. Uh, uh, Charlie being half awake is a good story generator. <laughs>